Imagine learning in a small group intimate setting while exploring unique European locations. EU Vet CE Experiences offers race-approved CE seminars that combine half-day lectures with time to relax and discover captivating cultures. The CE sessions are delivered in English, allowing you to elevate your career while vacationing with loved ones. Experience the perfect blend of learning and luxury at EU Vet CE Experiences interactive seminars in hand-picked European destinations. Elevate your knowledge and recharge simultaneously. Visit euveterinaryce.com to learn more. Today, I have for you a conversation with Jonathan Lesgarden. His family describes him as the veterinarian who got distracted by computers. Dr. Lesgarden is paving an exciting path to the future of veterinary medicine where we can use informatics to help us make faster and more informed decisions for better medicine. Dr. Lesgarden's story is about combining two passions into a career like no one else had ever done before. He also taught me some new vocabulary. When I say computational, I feel that my IQ has gone up 100 points. And make sure you stay all the way to the end because Dr. Lesgarden's answer to the rapid fire questions are some of my favorites. Now, enjoy the conversation. So were you already thinking about animals when you were younger? I know a lot of yes. veterinarians are. Yeah, okay. I was the stereotypical, uh, want to be a vet before it gets it. Like you, <laughs> you know, like when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you write the E backwards and you're missing a few, a few vowels here or there. Aww. So I, I was definitely one of those kids. Um, like we did uh, part of the place, the enrichment programs I was in growing up. We got to like pick our discipline. And so I got the shadow a veterinarian when I was like five or six. Oh, wow. Um, with parents, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's shadow, shadow is not like shadowing now, like when you're older, right? But like five or six got to like experience him, like what he did in his daily practice, like a postmortem. I got to experience, he had contracts with the city, so he caught strays. So like I got to go out with him to cast strays to help take care of them, especially if they were injured and things like that. So I got a lot of experience when I was very little. Yeah, very nice. Now, were your parents in a in a medical or a science background? Or, um, well, they both had different fields. My father was an electrical engineer. My mom was a mathematician uh, in college. But my father became a business um, a business person on uh, doing consulting and evaluation of heavy machinery. My mom became an ophthalmologist. Oh, wow. So it sounds so, like they had a, a couple of different careers as well. Yes, they had, they had, uh, my mom was like one of three doctors, three f- women doctors in her class. Wow. And like, she was like one of the first, uh, she did her whole thesis on computers with like punch cards back then. I mean, doing yeah. this, like one of the first women mathematicians in her program. So it's like, she was, they both had very different early careers than what they wound up doing later on in life. Very cool. So from five and six year old shadowing mm-hmm. a veterinarian, um, what kind of started heading you into the direction like in high school, college, where, how did you know where to go to college? What were those decisions? So uh, depending on who my family talked to, it was like, I was a veterinarian that got distracted by computers. Okay. Um, so I love computers. I love the idea of putting things in. I love the idea that it could take everything it, I knew, store it and react to it. Um, it was also like when DNA computing was coming out and like they talked mm-hmm. about the idea of that type of things. And so I got very interested in seeing how computer science and biology could be combined. And I wanted to explore it because I was very interested in it. 
um, in high school. And there were four, at that time, like four or five programs that did computers and bio together. Most colleges, you either a computer scientist or you're a biologist. You, and near the two shall meet. Um, <laughs> and so my advisor in high school said, why don't you look at Carnegie Mellon? And Carnegie Mellon, it was kind of like a double major, but they took some of the crazy, like whole college requirements out. And so I was able to do it. And, you know, I went in and I was able to like join their program. And so I got really interested and applied. And that's how I wound up in Pittsburgh. So what was the marriage between computers and biology? Computational biology. So it's modeling of biological systems on computers. So it's like, you know, they'll do um, protein synthesis. Like you hear about um, chemistry, a lot of the chemistry molecule modeling, that's computational chemistry. So computational biology is just modeling like the, like I did a lot of the Golgi apparatus formation. So could I actually build a computer simulation of the Golgi apparatus in a computer? Well, it's a lot of computers in a row, but you get the idea. <laughs> That's really interesting. I had no idea that there was a name for it. Um, so you started doing that in college. Yes. Right. And um, I also did like some chemistry because Carnegie Mellon's program was heavy in chemistry too. And I was getting towards the end and, you know, veterinary medicine was very, very small at Carnegie Mellon at that time. There was a lot of good pre-meds, but pre-vet wasn't really a thing. And the people in front of me, in the years ahead of me who applied to vet school, got the flat out, uh, do not pass go, do not collect $200 type letters from the oh, vet no. schools. And so like, and they were better students than I was. And I was just like, oh, uh, okay. So I, and I always wanted to be a vet. So when you looked at the information in vet schools, it's like 3% acceptance rate, you know, three, four, depending on the year. But if you had a graduate degree, it was like between 20 and 40% acceptance rate. So you and went so towards like, the graduate degree. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, I love computers. I still wanted to be that, but I love computers and I love biology. I love combining them. Well, maybe I can do a graduate degree. You know, I went around, looked at a few programs and my advisor, Dr. Fred Lani, at the time said, go talk to the biomedical informatics department at Pitt, which was like right down the street from Carnegie Mellon. And like what they were doing is kind of like what I always really like to do at Carnegie Mellon, which was like, instead of trying to build a model and find data that matches, use the information we have, the case information we have, a lot like a medical case. You don't say what the disease is and try to make their case fit, right? You look at the patient to diagnose it, it, right? Diagnose them. And so they were working on a data first approach, which is informatics. And I was like, oh, I really like this. So I said, well, can I do a master's there? Because I wanted to get to vet school as soon as possible. And they're like, sure. But, you know, there's funding if you want to do a PhD. And so I was like, well, how long does that take? And they go, well, how long? It depends on you. I said, can I do it in about three and a half, four years? I said, if you're lucky. <laughs> no, if, and, you know, that type of thing. It, it, they didn't say that because they're obviously very nice about it. But they said, you know, that would be fast. But I, I was like, okay. And when looking at it, the master's programs were very focused. So I could do one project, um, one or two projects, and I wouldn't have as much time to explore the full depth of informatics in a master's mm-hmm. program, right? You don't have that. And so I was like, mm-hmm. you know, a PhD could serve me well if I, if I really like, if I really like what I'm doing in informatics, 
And I decided that vet school is not for me at that time because, you know, I was growing up and, you know, discovering who you are as a college person eventually does, we hope. Um, Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just like, okay, I should probably do a PhD. So that way, if I really like it, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about continuing or stopping or going back. Mm. But if I, and if I, you know, a PhD has a lot of other value there. So I decided to do a PhD Um, and I loved it. And then, you know, while I'm in my PhD, we, I was working on some really cool, like, ALS type uh, machine learning algorithm. So how can I diagnose ALS from genetic and proteomic data mm-hmm. from like blood proteins and gene expression? And, you know, we were working on algorithms and they said, well, can we apply to animals? So I went around at that time, this was, you know, 2007-ish, 2008, when I had just finished like my thesis, basically the, it was running and done. I was like, I can't really find many people that are doing this in veterinary medicine. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and so th- there were people, it's just, it was sparse, right? Because genetics was still kind of really coming to the forefront. There was a lot of stuff coming up where the, they need this, but it wasn't really heavy in veterinary medicine as much, at least as much as it is now. And I was just like, you know, it's like the, uh, one of my favorite movies, Keeping the Faith. You know, you made a decision with lots of poise things like, I don't want to listen to anybody. I'll do it myself, you know, type deal. <laughs> and so it's, I couldn't find anyone. So I said, fine, I've always wanted to be a vet. Why don't I try go, applying to vet school, right? Because I, someone needs to bridge the gap between the informatics and human medicine and veterinary medicine. And so mm-hmm. I got into Penn. And so then I went to Penn. That's awesome. You so you were really forward thinking at this time especially in veterinary medicine? Well, I would call it lucky, I guess. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it made sense because I'm, I was seeing it was exploding. Like when I started at Pitt, um, I think there were 12 biomedical informatics programs. By the time I was looking at possibly going to vet school, there was over 50. Mm. And like Informatics was exploding everywhere in medicine. It became a required course all MDs go through now. It became its specialty that you can, you know, you can become an informatics specialist now or fellow. In human medicine. In human medicine. Right. And I was like, all this stuff is done in veterinary medicine too. It's just not formalized. So it, it, it felt like that it was going to be a natural evolution. And we will always have more complete data because of the HIPAA, no HIPAA, and we can have a whole pet life. And the number of doctors a single dog sees is less than the number of doctors a human will see. Um, so it'll be t- fewer hands in the pie writing data, writing information. It always felt like that veterinary medicine could help lead if there was, we could bridge it. We would like to thank our sponsor, VetBadger, the all-in-one practice management software that puts relationships first. Created by working veterinary parents, VetBadger provides all the communication, team workflow, and medical management tools you need to run an efficient practice and get home to the relationships that matter most. In support of parents in VetMed, VetBadger will be offering a signed copy of the book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team by Emily Singler to everyone who registers for a demo between Mother's Day, May 12th, and Father's Day, June 16th. To register, visit vetbadger.com and find the link in the description below. So. Now, 
during this time, did you have a lot of mentorship or? I had a lot of people who knew a lot of parts. Um, you know, it, it's, I had my family, God bless them. You know, I had friends who were amazing at like informatics. You know, one of my mentors, um, he was a neurologist who taught himself medical genetics. Like oh, wow. he, like he, it's almost like the comic where you open up the head and stick in the encyclopedia <laughs> and close it type deal. Um, he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's fantastic. He was one of, uh, the, one of my favorite people to work with. And then like, you know, talking with some veterinarians in the field, like the lab veterinarian at Pitt, who helped the mice colonies and things like that. And just my veterinarians that I knew growing up, but there really wasn't someone whose purpose was to connect all this data at that time that I could find. Yeah. And so like, and the group, even the Association for Veterinary Informatics was very small at that time anyway. And so it's like, there was, you know, there weren't even that many people that a society dedicated to informatics that was very large. So it was, it was more of guesswork and idea, but talking with Matt Kiter at PenVet, you know, talking about the idea, he loved the idea. And talking about like why I wanted to come to PenVet, because that's standard interview question, right? Yes. Why pen bet, right? Besides saying you're an in-state student, so it's significantly cheaper. <laughs> Probably should come right. up with a more creative answer, yes. <laughs> exactly, right. Um, and so, um, but it was pen bet, and I knew them anyway, because my brother went to Penn um, for graduate school. Oh. And so my father actually did too for engineering. And so it's like, I knew Penn, I knew the environment, and, you know, it's on the other side of the state, so it's closer to my family. And so there's a lot of reasons, and I, they were doing a lot of translational right? In a seven block radius, they have engineering, medical school, nursing, science, and business around the vet, right? So yeah. there's a very huge influence there. So Penn Vet was, you know, I really liked the idea of going to Penn. And so, but we went in there and then I found, um, you know, Jim Orsini, along with a couple of my professors who helped me really got me along saying, you know, they were working on different, um, Dr. Henthorne, you know, these individuals who are doing informatics or doing data type things really helped me kind of understand opportunities within PenVet. Um, you know, I, I pitched an idea of about an EMR for uh, during my time there. And like, they helped me get my next step, which was my internship. Because he was saying like, you know, if you want to really learn, internships help you also get jobs. You can do clinical, it helps you professionally but also gives you exposure in a way that takes years. It may not be the same way in general practice. Mm -hmm. So this is um, after vet school? After vet school. Okay. Yeah. So what was, I mean, you're, you're doing these high level, you're working with all these people at, at Penn and, but what was your actual vet student experience going through vet school? It was, it was fun. I mean, hard. Vet school is hard, right? You know, it, it's, you know, learning anatomical structures, getting, you know, I've been working with computer knowledge and computer part of my brain. So like how everything's structured for me is different than like, you know, how the bio labs are, how the anatomy labs are, staying late up, up late at night. But um, it was a lot of fun because I also taught some, like I, you know, I, I gave some lectures like to people who are interested about how informatics comes together and how it applies in One Health, like just on the side, because like, I use it as this is what I know. What do you know? So how can we how can we improve it? 
Um, but it was really in depth and like a lot of information, like four years for the field of veterinary medicine. You know, the, you talk about the one species versus five, right? <laughs> it's still never, it was a lot of information, but it was really kind of fun because also I learned about the study design and how people advance veterinary science. Mm. And like they'll do 30, 60, 100, 200 animals when coming from human medicine, my studies were on 2 million people yep. <laughs> or like 100,000 people or like 10,000 people for like some small studies, right? Um, and so like these were, it was just learning how to like rethink about how you do science on smaller sample size, just because of what we're often limited to and learning how, you know, the excellent clinicians and people there just like reframed and helped progress medicine forward. And also learning like, what did they have they tried? What has not worked? Or what is the, we know this works, but we don't know why type thing, yes. you know? And so that was a lot of fun learning about that, but it was a lot of work. I mean, it's late nights, a lot of studying, a lot of effort. I mean, luckily we had a great class, you know, 2013 class was a really fun class, um, but it was a lot, you know, it was, it's, it's a lot of coursework, <laughs> Yes. but the, the third and fourth year were a lot of fun when you're on rotations. Like I love, I love being out in the Bolton center. I love dermatology. Like I love the dermatology oncology and radiation oncology were a lot of fun because that was very akin to a lot of the stuff like their protocols in human medicine so I love yep. that part um pathology was a lot of fun because it's like categorizing the information to reuse and figure out you know pathologic diagnosis and then trying to do cause that you know causality which is always the end goal um you know it, it was a good experience it was you know sometimes that you look back like wow Look how much we covered but when you're in it you're like oh my god there's so much yes kind of like swarmed a little bit <laughs> um so were you excited to go into this internship after vet school and and what was that like well i actually wasn't originally going to go into internship because oh, okay. i know how hard it is like yes. you that how many hours like 14 hour days is not for multiple weeks in a row is not uncommon Yes, you I've know, done it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as you know, it's, and I had been through a master's and PhD program already. So like I was, you know, I wasn't the oldest in the class, but I was the older persuasion, let's call it, <laughs> right? There was a, I was definitely on the other side of the age gap. Um, and I was like, do I really want to? And that's where Jim Orsini came in and meeting with Tony DiCarlo about the internship, I actually did like a hybrid internship, a business internship and a traditional veterinary internship at the same time. Oh, that's unique. I bet that was helpful. Or was, well, I don't know. I won't assume. Tell me, was that helpful? It, no, it was. It was incredible because it also gave me room to explore practical informatics. Because yeah. a lot of times like we'll do research and do research study informatics. They're really cool. Like Kate grants and all the fun stuff for funding. But how do you do it in a private practice? You know, Red Bank mm -hmm. was one of the largest hospital networks in the country, like, you know, privately owned, like not by like a PE group or anything like that. And like, so they had a high volume, but how do you, how do you use what I've learned and being a vet and make the practice better? Yeah. Wow. Right. And it's not just monetarily better. It's how do you make the medicine better? How do you make the, get the information out? How do you get people able to do the research or figure out what's going on? You know, my client, one of my favorite things is I was able to trace down vaccine 
a vaccine reaction to a specific lot being shipped on because I could mine the data and do the causality. So instead of someone having to open up every single piece of paper and try to track it down, it was all in the system because of how it was structured. Mm-hmm. So I could quickly get it down, you know, I could, you know, and it's obviously a team effort. It's not just one person. Like we all were able to refine it very rapidly into what was the causality of the vaccine reactions that we were seeing. And it came in from, you know, the way things were being shipped and ordered because it was a, it was cyclical. It was like when you mm-hmm. see an order, like some of the, you'd see a, a spike in vaccine reactions after the order would arrive and then it would tail out as those that were affected were used or removed and then the rest of the vaccines would be safe so it was a really kind of cool process to learn how using the information in your system you can actually prevent errors or prevent adverse events quickly and solve things and so like i get that's part of the business internship was learning about operations of such a large practice and then i got to also follow great clinicians in surgery internal medicine oncology radiation etc and I got to learn a lot and sit with them. So you can't, you can't swap those out. Like, yeah. How, how widespread is using that type of information in hospitals today? Um, many hospitals run reports, okay. right? But, you know, reporting analytics is like, the way I say is analytics or reporting is giving you something significant informatics is telling you what it means okay so as doctors we get reports of diagnostics we get reports of pathology radiology right it's only us as clinicians that do the informatics that pulls the data in to figure out what does this actually what is the important information in it and so everybody a lot of people are doing reporting more and more people are doing informatics and like that type of process but it's still very nascent okay that's it tends to be the large aggregators that have it, but it's still very, very nascent. Interesting. All right. So after this internship, what mm-hmm. was next for you? Um, I got to stay on for a two-year fellowship at okay. Red Bank, um, where I did much more, like a lot more deep dive into business. And like, how do you run a hospital? What are the important considerations when starting, you know, starting two new departments? How would you set up the coding and pricing? How would you structure the data? You know, what type of studies and information do doctors and people on the floor want to make their, that we can get out of system or maybe we can't, right? Because I want to ask this, well, we don't even record it, right? right? But learning that type of process and saying, how does, how do you set up a system so that the, it does, you know, the practice management system or the computer doesn't just become the big black repository box. Right. right. And that's what most systems are right now. Most systems, you yeah. put a lot of information in for legal reasons and for financial. And only occasionally does it help you get information out as a practitioner. Right. You know, it's, you know, maybe for diagnostics, you can do it, but maybe by scanning up and down records, that's, that's fundamentally, it, it's a digital, you know, manila folder in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, of the clinician today and I, I'm putting myself in their shoes and I'm getting totally overwhelmed <laughs> about like, oh my goodness, that sounds like a whole lot of extra work I have to do on top of everything that I'm already doing. So, and the goal is for you not to have to do it, right? Yes. It, it's the, that's, that's where the, that's the point of the informatician in human medicine too, 
right. the goal is a doctor needs to have feedback of knowing how many antibiotics this patient has been on regularly. How do you build it into the system? I'm switching to human mode. How do we build in the system to know that this patient has been exposed to these types of antibiotics previously? Right? Where oh, wow. do you pull the data from? How do you build it? How do you extend it? Right? You know, that's the clinician needs to focus on practicing, right? And so the part of what I was doing is like, how can I get that process back? And so like you can have automated reports targeting that information that they need. And so what if every evening before visits, you had a printout of important points for that client, for that uh, patient that the doctor deems like, I want to at least have this bit of information at my fingertips. Right. So the doctor doesn't have to do anything. They just have to say, can I get this information available for me by the time I go in to see the client, the patient, right? And ideally they'll have it ready. They'll have it ready. And so part of my job was saying, how do I extract that information? You know, how do I find all like for red, you know, they had a lot of the red cap projects for like critical care was going on. How do I make sure I get all the information out that's needed so they can fill it out in the red cap project to make sure that, you know, for the critical care scoring and eventing, like what is missed? Are there patterns we see? Like those are things that doctors can ask, but we don't want the practicing clinician to have to do that that they get overwhelmed, it's more steps. And they're often, you know, the, that's, that, that's, you know, I don't want a baseball player. I don't want someone who's a professional baseball player to dig holes in the ground, right? You know, that, that someone else can dig the hole in the ground so the baseball player can play baseball, right? So that's the type of thing that the goal of the informatician and the goal of that person is to support that process. Well, okay, so now that we have every clinic wanting one of these people in their, <laughs> in their clinic, how, how, I mean, did you start teaching this to other clinics? How did you want to spread this? Not yet, but that's, okay. that's, that's where, but that you, you hit, you basically envision the same thing I want is that it, there is, there's a reason why there are three to five times more informatics jobs and there are people to fill it. Oh yeah. I bet. So, and the thing is informatics is, you know, terminology, right? We all love terminology. <laughs> the people who do analytics and reporting, they can do informatics, right? There may be some training differences, things like that, but it's a skill set of extracting information, right? And it doesn't all have to be in one body either, right? It could be like a, a chain, right? Um, but there needs to be some formal education, particularly in the veterinary side, because if I, if I pull together information from a system, how do I know that's good information that I'm pulling together? I have to hand it to someone and saying, does this make sense veterinary-wise? Right. Right. Computer scientists pulling together need specifications to build your tool, right? And the same thing. So we need to get veterinarians more educated in, you know, what informatics is, things like that. Start education program is out there because it, we're, we're going to come up to be what I call data-rich, information-poor. We're going to have hundreds and hundreds of terabytes, petabytes of data. And there's going to be many, many fewer people that can put it all together. You know, that's part of the reason why Association for Veterinary Informatics exists is to have us there. And, you know, we've been doubling every two, every two years or so in membership, but doubling of one is two, not 200, right? And we don't have that many. We have about 250, 300 members in like, I think, 
15 different countries, 14 different oh, countries. Wow. Um, I I'm a past president of um, ABI, but it's still a small number compared to the 100,000 plus veterinary professionals in the United States alone. Right? So it's a veterinary specific organization. Yep. And can anyone in the veterinary field join? So veterinary Absolutely. technicians, veterinarians? Absolutely. Oh, yep. fantastic. And you don't even have to be a vet. Um, we okay. have members who are not uh, veterinarians or in the veterinary field. They just love veterinary medicine and want to, and they do informatics outside. Okay. They support the process and they want to support the group. They come in, lend their intelligence. You know, we have different um, committees, different, um, uh, different like initiatives. Sorry, it's looking for the word. Um, <laughs> different initiatives that are occurring, but it's again, it's 200 plus people out of 200, 300, 400, however many thousand, hundred thousands of people in the world that are veterinarians. So it's definitely a very small number comparatively. Yeah. So what are some of the things that group tries to do for outreach or education? Um, we put on a series of lectures. We actually are starting a online website, uh, online uh, hosting where we can host, where we host lectures and give presentations. Um, we run a symposium, um, COVID like everybody else through wrench <laughs> and a lot of in-person. So we've been doing virtual, uh, a virtual symposium. We call it the Talbot Symposium. Okay. Um, anyone can join. It's not uh, veterinary. It's often presented on by veterinarians or in the veterinary field, but anyone can, can join. Um, we do, you know, we've been out reaching out to places like VMX, other places to start trying to introduce ourselves. We were at Fetch um, mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, but um, currently we are, um, we are not presenting there this year. And so we're, you know, trying to figure out how like the rest of the world, how do you start be going, going back to being in person? And what does yeah. that look like? But our virtual symposia is going on. In fact, we still are accepting some submissions. And then we're also doing a vet bloom as a online education portal. And so we'll be hosting a lot of lectures and talks there as well. And then of course it's us in the industry, you know, talking to people, talking about it, trying to get people excited and sponsorship you know, trying to get IDEX, Antec, trying to get, you know, the different veterinary partners to to be involved and things like that, to try to all bring us all together. Because all of us talk about the need, as you said, every hospital now wants it, what do we do? But it it's, can't be led by one, 10 or even hundred people. You need like, the, you need a community to say, this is important. Yeah. And veterinary medicine and human medicine did, you know, part of the NIH, you cannot have a medically funded NIH study without having an informatics section now. Oh, wonderful. Um, so, you know, some of the requirements of, um, for reusability requires informatics to be there. You know, human medicine has made the step to say informatics is key in medicine. You know, you know my soapbox, my personal belief, and, you know, it's expected is that veterinary medicine also needs to do that because we need to, we need to, we need people who specialize in bringing the, all the fantastic care and talent and amazing people that put information in, getting it back out so that they don't have to remember every case. You know, how many of us have called a friend about a case that they may have seen that you, this is the first time I'm seeing, so I'm going to call my friend, my oncologist friend, right? I'm yeah. going to call my derm friend. I was like, I've never seen this. What is it, right? But imagine being able to do that with 
a thousand people and a thousand people's cases and oh, say, wow. what case matches my case? What did they do? And then either reach out to them or have it actually be at your fingertips saying, look, this is the protocols that they use. And this is what happened. Like imagine being able to do that. Like that's the dream. Yeah. And I can definitely see how that can make much stronger research studies as well. Yes. So what are, what are some of the barriers that you're finding in getting some of these, this recognition and implementation into the veterinary side? Um, I'm not sure barrier because barrier implies resistance or pushback okay. and somewhat, no, no, it, it's, it's because people talk about like, what are your barriers? It's all, it's a, sometimes a lack of, um, exposure mm -hmm. is one thing. It's like, you know, people, people, all of us at one point have said, oh, I really wish there was something to do that. And then someone goes, oh, well, you haven't seen this device or you haven't seen that app or that does it right on your phone. You ask, you know can I do this? I'm like, yeah, just download that app from the play store or from, you there's know. an app for that. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's, that's legitimately some of it, but you, until that time you're like, I didn't know that existed. Yep. Right. Um, some of it is funding, right. You know, it's the, it's not a direct income generator, though clinical studies and new findings could be right. So in, you know, some of the like pharmaceutical industry, things like that, this is standard. Like informatics is standard in their discipline. <clears throat> but for the practice side, it's just exposure, understanding what you can do, and then having the, you know, the resources to kind of start bridging together and having the software, which tends to be probably the biggest barrier. If we're gonna talk about barriers or opportunities, most a lot of the software does not lead to easy feedback, right? Okay. Yeah. And a lot of these, and there, it's because a lot of the software is designed for fast billing because financial incentives. Um, it, it's money, you know, we're a cash-based business. It's, yep. and, you know, and documentation for legal reasons and speed. Those three things, none of those, those three priorities, which most systems satisfy, none of it had included getting information out to make the practice of medicine better, yeah. right? That wasn't in it, <clears throat> sorry. But that doesn't mean that's not their intent, right? Not, they're not malicious saying, oh, we don't feel that's valuable. But when you have those three, getting the data back out, that's hard yeah. because you required structured data. It requires talent to focus specifically on how do I take what I put in it and elevate it back to me, right? Or connect other systems. So th those are the opportunities we have. But like anything, it starts with a good conversation. Right, which is why I was excited to come on because <laughs> we'll I, spread it, the know, word. <laughs> no, that's, it, but it starts with a good conversation. It does, right? mm -hmm. and it starts with someone saying, "Okay, that makes sense," or someone saying, "I'm not sure I understand that or agree," and then we figure out how do we do it better. That's right. and it's more people that have the conversation. It suddenly won't. It suddenly it will lead it to like, "Oh, there's an app for that, right?" Oh, there's a way we can do that. And once we can get that going, that will lead to the true, um, that will lead us to be able to do these types of things wherever we want. Fantastic. Well, I, I don't know if I completely got us off track, but uh, for your, from your story, I, I got excited and, and you did too. So <laughs> um, it's a big part of what it excites you, I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you're, you're in your fellowship, you're working on this business slash veterinary combo you are 
fueling the the informatics uh what was kind of next did you have some other twists and turns from there it's life of course yes. so during that time <laughs> I got married uh to love my life you know my better mm-hmm. half as everyone says um so that obviously was a big event yes and okay. also compassion first came into existence um so compassion first form it uh I think it was seven hosp- eight hospitals were acquired mm-hmm. to start compassion first seven hosp- seven or eight um it's only a couple of years it's it, it's 2015 and that feels like a lifetime ago it's only seven years because of yeah. covid like it was like it's it's uh it's bc it's before covid right <laughs> uh, <laughs> right um, you know i had a friend who worked for a compassion first hospital so yeah yeah and like there i actually got to be like a, um you know i did actually i didn't know if i wanted to go into the more operational corporate life mm-hmm. it's not bad or good it's just it's a different type of life and so i actually became a medical director of a hybrid hospital um, in New Jersey. And, you know, for about a year where I got to like, you know, work on the clinic floor, do GP, some emergency, work with fantastic doctors, some fantastic folks and experience what it would be like to be, you know, all feet in practice of veterinary medicine. Cause I hadn't at that point, like I'd been a lot of hybrid, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hybrid has advantage of like, jack of all master of none type approach right and so I wanted to experience what it'd be like and you know I I have to say if it the people at the hospital made the job fun but being medical director and working purely as clinical was not my passion Mm -hmm. and so I got um with compassion first my boss at that time John Crisell who's going to be my boss Dr. Crisell offered me the position of director of veterinary informatics at Compassion First. And so that's how I became director of veterinary informatics at Compassion First. And so I got to work with reporting, data, analytics, putting things together, working with clinical studies, you know, did a lot of pricing and coding because, you know, there, I, 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 the numbers keep jumbling in my head, but basically like there was a study shown that the value of your data is like five times your annual revenue. Oh yeah, I can imagine that. Right. Some of it's cheating is like because one time annual revenue is the data that went in, right? To put it in there, right? So it's at least one. You know, it's at least one times, right? <laughs> um, but it is like a lot of opportunity. And so like working with them, trying to get the information out, it's like, how do we do better pricing? Right. How do we do better coding so that we can get out? How do we do, you know, outcome assessment? How do we track biosurveillance? How do we do antimicrobial stewardship? All these types of things require understanding the data and extraction. And it's not also from a, can I run a report regularly, Mm -hmm. right? It's, does a report lead to action? And then how does that action impact the system? And can you set up those processes? You know, I got to work, I got to work with fantastic clinicians across the country, you know, from Colorado East um, during that time period and really kind of learned about the culture of a multi-state, you know, multi-hospital conglomerate aggregator and just like learn about the different perspectives and things I never thought of. Cause there are a lot of people who do data. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. practice managers do, they don't call it informatics, right? They call it business intelligence, but it's getting business intelligence and informatics just tend to be different foci. 
One is, you know, a lot of people when they talk about informatics, they usually mean medical, right? Or biological. Business intelligence is business informatics, right? <laughs> it, when, and so when I first heard the term BI, I was like, business, business informatics? And they said, no, business intelligence. But it's the same type of thing is, how do I make intelligent business decisions by getting information out of my operations to make the next decision? And the second you're talking about getting information out, it's informatics too. Informatics. So like learning how people did that and how they approached their data and how they structured their satisfaction surveys, mm -hmm. right? You know, same thing with clinical studies. How do you lead when you're doing quality of life studies and outcome studies with your client? How do I lead? Do you ask the questions? Is your pet better? Right? No. Like, cause if they, no one wants to write, no, my pet's not better unless they're really, you know, when talking about have what you've done made your pet better, right? Right. Not everyone will give a truthful answer because that's a, my action leads to a negative outcome. Maybe it's my, what I did wrong, right? Mm. So learning how to ask the questions, which impacts the data, that's like critical part of study design, but it's also informatics, right? If I set up your documents to say, check these three boxes in order for you to go move on, everyone's going to check those three boxes, whether or not it happened, right? Right. And so it's like, it, have you, you know, it's like the people who put the fake, fake email addresses. Well, I don't want to give you my real email address, but I can't move forward without doing that part. Right. And so it's all that type of things is all these uh, practice managers and doctors are doing this. And so learning from them, how to bring it all together, like, and presenting about what informatics is and what people can do with it. And, you know, Unfortunately, when you're starting out, a lot of it has to be, how do you pay for your job kind of deal, right? Yes. So it's like, you know, it's one of those things where you have a um, part of it, like monetary, but then you can also say, now this, and this is how you practice better. And luckily I was an organization that liked to do both, right? But, you know, and you have to figure out how to do both oftentimes when you're starting out. And so that was part of the job is learning how to both show return and show improvement at the same time. So I, I got real world education about starting a new department and starting up a new capability with people who are very smart, who are doing similar things to you, but may not know that's what it's called. And so that was part of my time. That was my, a lot of my time at Compassion First. Yeah. Now I, I'm really interested to understand, did you inform um, pet owners or your customers about this process and making the business more efficient? How did that go? Because I think it could be a way to say, you know, we're really, we're doing this because we want to make our, our hospital and our medicine better. So what was your experience there? Um, minimal, it's just oh. <laughs> to be honest, um, because I was still practicing. Mm-hmm. I did for my clients, like I would talk about like, and they would say, why? I'm like, well, you know, just looking at our own system, like we've, I've, like I could quote data from our own system and show like how many thousands of pets had this scenario and saying like, while they look at these population studies in our data from our area, right? We all know location, location, location in real estate, right? It's the same mm -hmm. thing in medicine for behaviors of disease, as you all know, as we all know. I could give them confidence or give them more dose of reality sometimes about outcomes based on our data by working with our clinicians and things like that. So I was able to do it as a practitioner, but in terms of uh, B to C type stuff, there was not a lot of explanation about these types of things. 
um, that were happening. However, now, like, you know, we talk, people talk about informatics, computers, AI. I mean, when I was starting, Compassion first started, you know, the iPhone one had only been around for half a decade. Wow. It's crazy right? to think about that. Yes. Right. Yep. But when I was starting here, the iPhone one had only been around for half a decade. Right. And obviously it wasn't iPhone one by that time. Tesla didn't exist. Yep. Right. You know, all these things that, you know, Oculus didn't exist meta or, you know, the company formerly known as Facebook, right. It had, it was, it started in 2003. Right. But all their things, their purchases, talking about VR, AR, people putting on glasses, taking, you know, seeing where furniture is placed in your room, virtually on your phone. None of that existed at that time. So the consumers were not as exposed to this type of possibility at the time when we started. So like, even if we wanted to, like, how do you, ingesting that is hard. Now it's like, when you say your app has AI or ML built into it, they go like, it's almost like consume, a lot of consumers expect that now. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like the Alexa devices um, that have like, you know, the apps that are communicate, right. Your vet app that tells you, should I be concerned or not? Like there's things like that going on now that are much more commonplace. The smart chats are now everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think now there's a lot more opportunity for, veterinary medicine to show the impetus and the true power of the data and the informatics and the high quality of care that the clinicians provide now and show how it's not just the fact that we have amazing doctors, that we can build systems to help support them and the clients too, right? And so like, I think, I think veterinary medicine is primed to start having this saying like, we do this now. Too, yeah. But in terms of what's out there right now, it's minimal for uh, businesses to clients. I, I definitely foresee that accelerating massively in the next couple of years. So, well, as someone who's really interested in this field, I like hope that's true. <laughs> <laughs> right? uh, yes. Okay. So um, we're already starting to kind of talk about this transition. So what yeah. happened between then and where you are now? Um, so Compassion First was growing in leaps and bounds and, you know, I was, I knew, um, Dennis Balance, uh, from ABI and he and I used to talk about ideas for how to use data and things like that. And he offered an opportunity, um, to explore it in the Mars family. And so, you know, it's, I'm forever grateful for the people at Compassion First and for the job and everything like that but it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And so Dennis, you know, worked with uh, Howard and Juliet at BCA at that time. It was before the Voyager project, the EMR project um, started and, you know, brought me on because they wanted someone who could, you know, specialize in this type of, I don't want to say transformative because that sounds like too, like, you know, um, too high, like too like in this pie in the sky type stuff when people talk <laughs> about transformative medicine or like bench, like buzzword almost, right? You right. know, but like understood that having someone who can take what has been recorded and transform it into something that is um, usable by clinicians is a really cool, you know, it's a cool idea and that, you know, I could have a place to do that. Um, and so like one of the first projects I did when I joined 
is we built like a machine learning algorithm to like track and, and predict, try to predict antibiotic resistance. Oh, by, wow. you know, if you're in a hospital in one specific area, right? And you, you know, we didn't, we did, it's not like out there in the wild, right? Because it was a proof of concept, but can you take a data from your case based on where you are geographically and use all the samples of the hospitals around you, say, what is your patient most likely to have resistance-wise? It -hmm. doesn't replace cultures, right? Because it's a prediction. It's an estimation. Right. But if I don't know, and I want to start them, a lot of people say, we'll start you on amoxicillin for a few days while we get the culture back, right? Or they may pick clavamox, or they may pick even go even more, you know, broad spectrum. Imagine being able to say, well, I think based on this organism in this area, this is the resistant pattern I'm seeing, right? What would I do? However, the caveat is veterinarians don't like sampling naive patients, right? You know, we'll often do amoxicillin, right? As a nascent UTI, we'll do amoxicillin five to seven days, depending on their pers- your, your training and what you feel comfortable with and, you know, the recommendations. And then it should be fine. And so what you discover is that it becomes a pattern of if the animal, if we're going to, if I'm going to culture this animal, I would no matter what, my prediction is more likely to match because a doctor's behavior when they're going to culture is the model that we're doing. We're not modeling on all animals. We're saying, if your animal was going to receive a culture, what would I expect from that culture, right? It's not a, every animal off the street, if I just picked them up and did a culture on them, what would I find? And so it was kind of a cool idea and proof of concept to show that we can take the data from these systems after doing a decent amount of massaging, right? And produce something that a clinician could use. And so that was kind of like the impetus to start. And it was like one of the early projects for the EMR platform, Voyager, that is being built in the Mars veterinary health uh, ecosphere to kind of say, can we build a platform that establishes this type of data that we can build this feedback cycle, that we can take the fact that we have 2,600 hospitals or 2,200 hospitals in the United States, and depending on where you are, give you information that you could not get anywhere else. Wow. And so that was like, so that was like when I came on, that was kind of, that's kind of like the vision and where I am. And today we're building a platform. We're live in one hospital. We're going to be live in two hospitals in a month or so, month or two. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's moving there. Oh, congratulations. That's really exciting. And I, I can definitely understand, you know, you, you got so much foundation and opportunity at Compassion First, but that opportunity to go to VCA also allowed you a, a lot of reach. So you're mm-hmm. going to be able to help a lot of veterinarians. Yeah. And my rule for life, like kind of putting like, well, why aren't you not practicing? I have a rule. If I'm not going to practice, I have to help more animals in one year than I can see in my life. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not going to be the one practicing, I have to somehow empower veterinarians and the clinical staff, right? We can't, you know, it's true today, the quality of the clinician is definitely impacted and influenced by the quality of their help. And, you know, that you have the best vet if you're not given the, 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 and I've been blessed. I've had 
some of the best technicians I've ever had in my life. And every, you know, most vets say that, right? So, you know, I can't say it, but I, I, you know. Cause it's true. I mean. <laughs> it's exactly right. No, but I've been, you know, I've been able to do what I do in practice at high level medicine because I've had amazing, amazing technicians. Mm-hmm. And it's because of them, I've been able to be as successful veterinary wise. Um, and so, so I have to somehow empower them to help every animal. Cause if I can see 5,000 animals a year, and now I can help a thousand vets, right? Yep. That's five. That's five. At a minimum, that's five million, right? Yep. Exponentially increased. And I can't practice for a thousand years. So you know yes. that, and that that's the you know that's my rule is that if I can't, if I'm not doing something that helps more pets in a year than I could see in my life, I shouldn't be doing it because I should be practicing veterinary medicine because then at least I know the animals as best as I can. The animals that I'm seeing, I'm helping. So. Thank you for giving us a lot of information about what is happening in veterinary medicine, Mm -hmm. um, some opportunities that, um, because I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. We we have a lot of people going through vet school, well, relatively, um, (laughs) but not all of us um, want or or, are made out to be is kind of what he said, but, you know, really want to be Mm -hmm. a clinician. Um, we need clinicians, but we all can have a part and we all can take um, our knowledge that we have, our skills, and mm-hmm. especially because you were a veterinarian and, and you can really understand and empathize with that position as well and yeah. still be able to help, like you said, exponentially. So I think that's exciting. Yeah. So what are you most excited about uh, these days? The future, I guess. For multiple reasons. I mean, <laughs> things opening up, like being able to resume, like, not, you know, interactive like that. But like the, I think there is a progressive awareness of this need mm-hmm. and progressive awareness of the, um, that we are robbing ourselves of some of the best uh, things that we have, is that we have these amazing people who are recording their thoughts, their ways of building things, all that together. And it just sits there. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's awareness, you know, people will extract it financially for operation reports, stuff like that. But for the medical and, you know, better medicine is better business. You know, it's something that, you know, I firmly believe in. I can't, my uh, doctor, Sonia Dennis, uh, who's a practitioner in New Hampshire, she came up with the, she came up with that tagline for ABI. Um, she was the president before me, but it was, it's really true that if we are robbing ourselves of all this incredible thought from these, you know, thousands and thousands of uh, person years of experience, right, and knowledge that's sitting there waiting for us to help the next generation or for the next case, I think that awareness is coming out and evolving quickly. And so, you said it, as you said multiple times, right thing, it's in the next couple of years, right? We, you know, dangerous, we always say next few years, right? But um, I really do think that, and it feels like that because the number of conversations I've had in the past year and a half, two years has been exponentially more in the prior five. Mm-hmm. And so I think there really is this trend around it. And that's just the most exciting because no one's smart enough to think at all, but with the talent of the incredible people I've gotten to work with and that are practicing veterinary medicine, if we can learn from what they know, we can cover our own gaps in our knowledge and learn and really improve these things where we say, 
I don't know what's the best outcome. Well, if you have all the cases that match that you could find together, you may not know the best choice, but you at least have very informed options and you can see what to do next. Yeah. Um, Educated decision. (laughs) mm -hmm. Educated, you know, it it is guesswork, right? Medicine is an art, not, not just pure science, but at least you can have educated guesses based on prior history, as opposed to, you know, calling a few friends and hopefully do it. And it's a testament to the quality of our field that we can do so well with that. Mm-hmm. But imagine how much better we could do, given the fact that I can pull all the brilliant people together and help use their experience and their casework and things like that to help solve future problems. So that, that to me is what's really exciting coming down the line. Fantastic. So thinking about your career path, um, mm-hmm. what is a piece of advice you would give uh, people in our profession? Um, other than the standard trope, follow your passion, right? You know, you know, it, it's all the stuff. It, it's probably one of the major reasons for my success is I've looked outside of the domain I'm in. Mm. You know, a lot of, and it's not wrong, right? It's not wrong to look within your domain and try to see what other people do, but there are often problems or ways people have attempted it on things that are like it, but may not be in your area. An engineer may have solved a mechanics problem of putting together a robot, right? Mm-hmm. It has flexion, it has joints, and you say, oh, maybe that thing. Maybe there's a way of people, you know, in human medicine of diseases that are of similar sort. Maybe you can chase that down. It's like looking outside of the sphere that you've been exposed to into other areas has really been part of my causality for success um like it's you know also i've been lucky to have really smart people around me so i can like absorb by osmosis um (laughs) but it's a um you know and then also don't a don't be afraid to say i don't know right that's that's a lot of us are taught that uh, you know sometimes it's hard to say that right because especially when you work it so hard but also ask like, it's all right if you ask a bunch of people that don't know, but if everyone's willing to work together, it's kind of like, it has to be collaborative. And revealing that you've made a mistake is not a bad thing either. Because, you know, it's been famous quote about making light bulb, Thomas Edison, right? I found that. I, I found that too. ways. I, yeah. Exactly not right. to make a light bulb. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, that's just as important. And so it's like, those are some of the key things. And don't give up right? You know, if you truly believe it, it's, you know, you have to be realistic, right? And you have to pay your bills, right? Support your family and things like that, you know, as, as needed. But um, don't give up because if, you know, with your passion and conviction, a lot of stuff can happen. So That's beautiful. All right. So I, I have kind of some rapid fire questions to wrap up Uh-oh. our time. So yes, <laughs> nothing too crazy, just fun and a good way to wrap up our conversation. Mm-hmm. So what is one thing that is on your bucket list? Travel to Japan. Ooh, anywhere in particular or? The whole country. I mean, the country is beautiful. I've had ever since um, learning about, you know, in the medieval history times, like learning about like the Shogun era and things about, I've always wanted to go to Japan. I mean, it started with loving sushi as a very young kid, but it's, it's when I actually learned about the history of sushi and like the history of, their culture and things like that. I just really want to go in the experience, you know, going up and down. I've been to China a couple of times and I've loved every time I've been there and it's a beautiful country. 
I also want to go to Japan. And so that's, that's on my bucket list. Oh, cool. Um, what is a simple moment that brings you joy? Um, not to be corny when my son wakes up in the morning mm. and, you know, he comes over and he gives you the biggest smile in the world. And it's like, there's nothing, nothing, there's no agenda. There's nothing else in the day that's happened yet, but you get greeted with a smile, you know? Yeah. Oh, love that. Um, all right. I love this question. If you could create one rule that everyone had to follow, what would your rule be? One rule that everyone has to follow. Yep. Oh dear. That's like a really hard question. Um, <laughs> you know, it's one rule that everyone had to follow that. Well, and what's, without a caveat at all. I mean, the thing is like that everyone needs to experience pure joy at least once. uh, Now I have to do a follow-up question. What's your experience of pure joy? Or is that your son? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I've been fortunate enough to have a couple moments like marrying my wife, my son, you know, family, you know, it's luckily I've had a very good, you know, environment and community around me that I've been able to experience multiple moments of pure joy. But I know it's when you don't, you're not worried about what happened at work. You're not worried about, you know, sickness and health, but you're in the moment and you're just loving what's going on. Right. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, I've luckily enough had a couple moments in my life, but it's been, something that like everyone needs to have that at least once and that that's like that would be a wish for everybody i'm all for that law so (laughs) all right and finally what is one thing you are grateful for i'm grateful that i've met people who have believed in me and believed in what i was thinking because there's you know people go through life without that and so I'm really, really grateful that I've been able to meet such people throughout my life. And it's been not just one, right? Some people are lucky to only have one. I've had multiple people in my life that have believed in me. And so that you can't be anything but grateful for that. Yeah, well, that's perfect. And I think it's also a message to for us to believe in people as well, to keep that yes. going.